0: In 1970, when Congress enacted the Occupational Safety and Health Act, it created one additional mechanism for the agency, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, where in cases where the inspector determined that an imminent danger existed, he could make or she could make a recommendation to the secretary to seek injunctive relief in order to involve the courts to put a stop to a a circumstance or a practice that constituted in the compliance officer's belief an imminent danger. That provision has not been tested in federal court until this past month. And we'll talk about that today on the April 2021 episode of the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. Hello, everyone. I'm Manish Rath, and welcome to the OSHA 3030. Uh, I am a partner at the law firm Keller & Heckman in Washington, D.C., and I'm a management side OSHA attorney. Uh, My practice involves representing management in occupational safety and health law. And I'm joined today by my colleague here at Keller and Heckman, Taylor Johnson. Taylor, welcome. It's good to have you back on the show as a co-presenter.
1: Thank you, Manish. It's great to be back.
0: Well, we've got a great topic, as you know, Taylor. This is a case that came out, uh, in a decision that came out in federal court uh, this past month, and it involves Section 13 of the Occupational Safety and Health Act. That section applies to cases involving imminent danger.
1: That's right, modest. Like you said, we've got a great program lined up today. Um, We're going to review the facts in the landmark federal court decision that you mentioned. Uh, We'll provide background on the imminent danger clause, um, which of course was the cause of action in this case. Uh, We're going to review OSHA's position on an employee's right to bring a direct suit. Uh, We'll analyze the court's ruling provide a brief overview of recent COVID-19 developments in the area of employment law. And of course, as always, we'll wrap up with some practical takeaways for employers. Uh, And Monish, there's certainly a lot to unpack here in in this landmark case.
0: There sure is, and we uh, always wrap up uh, with a practical list of takeaway items, and we've been doing that, as you know, Taylor, Uh, Since the beginning back in 2013, this is probably our 93rd episode and all of our prior episodes are libraried on our website khlaw.com and for the past several years all of our episodes have been rebroadcast as a podcast and as well for uh, the past half year, uh, we've been posting them on YouTube and we'll continue to add more of our uh, legacy episodes back onto YouTube because these are issues that are still of great relevance to safety and health professionals and in-house counsel. And we've been doing this for free for friends of and clients of Keller and Heckman uh, for the whole time. And the only thing we ask in exchange is that when uh, participants in the program get the invitation by email to forward it on, to three other folks who are in-house counsel or safety and health professionals responsible for compliance with safety and health at your several organizations, either within your organization or at an organization down the street. If you know others who aren't participating in the OSHA 3030, please share the good word. So with that said, Taylor, you've given us a good roadmap of what we're gonna talk about today. Why don't we first talk about the case that we're all here today for? It's Jane Doe, one, two, three, et cetera and Justice at Work uh, versus the Secretary of Labor uh, and uh, OSHA. So here's what happened. Our case starts at a meat packing or meat uh, preparation plant in Dunmore, Pennsylvania. And this is uh, a small town adjacent to Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, And this was in the earlier days of the COVID pandemic employees had brought complaints. They alleged that they first complained to management and seeking uh, relief and and alleging that they received none or insufficient uh, redress. They brought their complaints to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and then they uh, sought this suit. Essentially, their allegations are that in the earlier portion of the pandemic era, their working conditions at the food processing plant in Dunmore, Pennsylvania, uh, the working conditions included a failure to provide sufficient cloth face coverings. They alleged that, that at some cases, some supervisors told them to bring face coverings of their own, uh, and an allegation that the management failed to implement proper social distancing protocols on the production line and that employees were working too close to each other on the production line an allegation that there was insufficient opportunity for hand-washing and inclusive in that allegation was an allegation that employees weren't able to take or permitted to take sufficient breaks for hand-washing, and an allegation that the staffing system uh, resulted in commingling of workers from other locations, uh, thereby uh, breaking the bubble concept where if there were uh, employees who had exposures at other locations and they were being rotated around that they that they might introduce the possibility of a vector for contagiousness. Uh, into an area that didn't have any known contagions uh, cases and so but but, of course, this was something that the plaintiffs acknowledged was a rotation that was due to an attempt to address staffing shortages in one area or another. Uh, so that that's the allegations brought by the employees in the Jane Doe one, two, three, et cetera, versus secretary. Uh, those allegations are common complaints that we've seen at workplaces where employees believe that no matter how much an employer has done to to mitigate uh, the possibility or the risks, uh, for transmission, that there there may be something more that the employees believe should should be done. Taylor, walk us through this. So this is this is the basis of the allegations for the employees, and and it ultimately results in in a suit. But how does it get there?
1: Sure. So based on those allegations, the employees filed an administrative uh, complaint with OSHA under the OSH Act, um, and in addition to the allegations that you mentioned. Um, uh, Oh, uh, the uh, the employees also um, stated that OSHA failed to conduct an on-site inspection at the plant, uh, but it turns out that OSHA did conduct an inspection. Uh, in fact, OSHA found that the plant had implemented uh, various mitigation factors, uh, such as sanitation procedures, uh, staggering work breaks, and providing for social distancing in the break rooms.
0: Uh, in in, in fa- addition, Taylor, if I could jump in, they also yep. were doing temperature checks, they were yep. uh, doing symptom screening And uh, that they were providing uh, sufficient face coverings for workers as well.
1: That's right. And and in fact, the agency noted in their report that there had been no reported cases of COVID at the plant for over a month. And the employees, of course, objected uh, to the results of the inspection and then sued OSHA under Section 13, which we'll get into in a little bit. And OSHA did not issue a citation. Uh, In Monashville, some employees have been successful in bringing claims alleging imminent danger. Uh, For example, there's the UFW versus Foster Farms case in California. Uh, Those cases were brought under different causes of action, uh, such as public nuisance, which have a different standard, uh, a lower standard, actually, than Section 13 of the OSH Act.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that. I think that's right. But But the public nuisance uh, kind of claim that you've seen in several cases around the country, including one that we've discussed here at the Ocean 3030 on Staten Island involving an Amazon distribution center, these do have their own setbacks or challenges for the plan of community. One of them is that it's hard to properly allege that a workplace is a place uh, that has the capacity to introduce a public nuisance unless the alleged nuisance is... uh, exceeding the bounds of the workplace and into the community. But the allegations in those cases are employee against employer cases where the community at uh, being described in the allegation is the workplace itself and only the workplace. And that, that is a much more uh, difficult, I think, s- set of allegations for a plaintiff to make if you're what you're really doing is misappropriating the public nuisance concept for workplace areas of law. Uh, so it brings with it its own set of challenges, to be sure, for the plaintiff here. As you note, this is a unique case, and and I know that a lot of people see those and and because they use the word imminent danger in the allegations in those public nuisance cases, that they they could be conflated. So I think you're making a really good point that this is a case brought under the section 13 of the Act, which is procedures for counteracting an imminent danger. So when this set of plaintiffs brought this case, this was a case that the court noted was a case of first impression, uh, and meaning that they was not aware of any other case anywhere else in the, in, the, in the country that had been brought in the 50-year history of the statute under Section 13. Certainly it was a case of first impression in this federal court, which is the Middle District of Pennsylvania, the Federal District Court for the Middle District of Pennsylvania. So Taylor, why don't we talk about section 13 since, since it is distinct from those other cases that, that people often compare it to because those other cases use the term imminent danger. Here we have a case which is actually being brought under section 13 of the act called procedures to counteract an imminent danger. The, so, so just to make sure that everyone in the OSHA 3030 community is brought up to speed on that section, cause it is obscure. Uh, let's talk about that for a moment. Essentially what that act does is it provides the agency extra enforcement powers beyond those described elsewhere in the act. The act provides for the possibility to, it, it provides the agency with subpoena powers and it provides the agency with the opportunity to conduct a physical inspection and it provides the agency, the act provides the agency with the power to propose penalties, issue citations. And so Section 13 is a separate and additional power granted under limited circumstances. And what it says is that employees can petition the secretary to conduct an inspection if the employee petitioner believes that an imminent danger might be present either as a circumstance or a practice at a work site. And if that happens, then The Occupational Safety and Health Administration can send a compliance safety and health officer to conduct an inspection to determine whether an imminent danger exists. And if the compliance officer concludes that there is an imminent danger at the work site, the compliance officer may make a recommendation to the Secretary of Labor that action should be taken. And this extra action, this extra power afforded under this section of the act is that the secretary may seek injunctive relief and put an imme- and seek for a court order to put an immediate stop to a practice or condition that the secretary alleges constitutes an imminent danger. That's the extra power that Congress gave to the agency under this section. Now, there is a sort of checks and balances put in at the very end of this section, 13, section 13, subsection D says, now, if after the OSHA compliance officer has made its conclusion that his or her conclusion that there, uh, there is an imminent danger and has made a recommendation to take action and the Secretary of Labor fails to act, fails to exercise its section 13 powers and does so either arbitrarily or capriciously, the employees may then go directly to court without the use of the Secretary of Labor as an intermediate and seek that same injunctive relief. And this is the law that forms the basis of this case, James Doe, one, two, three, et cetera, versus the Secretary. Taylor, so this case now comes to court. The employees have brought this suit. Essentially, they are alleging to the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Pennsylvania that the secretary failed to take remedial action in the form of seeking injunctive relief in the context of an imminent danger, and the employees are now seeking that the court do so at the request or plea of the employees themselves. Walk us through the arguments between the two parties.
1: Sure, Manish. So. Right out the gate, OSHA claimed uh, that the case was moot. Uh, OSHA's argument here was that they had completed their inspection at the plant, uh, that they have broad prosecutorial discretion that allows them to not issue citations, which is what they did in this case. Uh, The employee group quickly countered and argued that the case was not moot, uh, that the court could provide the relief that they sought under section 13. OSHA then argued that this is only true if the secretary As you mentioned, arbitrary and capriciously uh, declines a recommendation by an OSHA inspector to take action, a recommendation that, as we know, was not present in this case. Uh, The employee group disagreed, uh, claiming that employees can petition a court for relief whenever the secretary arbitrarily and capriciously fails to take action under the act, uh, regardless of the OSHA inspector's recommendation. OSHA then pointed out that Congress intentionally made Section 13 a high bar, uh, to which the employee group countered that Congress would not tie the hands of the secretary such that he or she could only act based on recommendations received uh, from subordinates. So, um, you know, some, some in- interesting arguments certainly on each side, um, a lot for the, for the judge to unpack there. And, and Monash, you know, he heard all the arguments and, and eventually did issue a decision in the case.
0: I have to concede, Taylor, that that last argument brought by the employees was uh, compelling enough to get a second look from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, walk us through what they were arguing when they said that Congress wouldn't have—it's not likely the Congress would have limited the authority of the secretary based on the recommendations of his or her, her subordinates. What is the scenario that they envisioned in making that argument?
1: Right. So I think what they were what they were saying is that. If the secretary wanted to take action, uh, this, uh, you know, implementing additional COVID safeguards, for example, in this case, that he or she can only do so now based on the recommendation of the subordinate, of the inspector. Um, so in a, in a scenario where the, the secretary may have disagreed with, with the inspection or wanted to take that additional step, you know, the employees here were sort of arguing that, you know, it, it, it just doesn't make sense to have the, the structure be that way if, if the if the secretary is then has his or her hands tied based on the recommendation of, of the inspector.
0: And... It's a interesting argument, but I think it overlooks, I I think Congress had contemplated this possibility and did indeed intend precisely that result. Because I think that the employee argument overlooks the possibility that exists almost every or at least every other administration change. And that is that the compliance officer is indeed a career safety and health professional who remains with the agency regardless of the changes in administration and the political appointments that uh, for the positions that run the agency. Whereas the secretary may have a different view as to what cases merit injunctive relief. And in those cases, employees could seek redress directly from the courts, if they believe that the secretary's position was arbitrary or capricious. And so I think that it, to me, makes perfect sense that indeed Congress would have intended to require as a prerequisite for a secretary to be able to make a determination that it be predicated on a recommendation, first of all, a conclusion by a compliance officer that an imminent danger exists. And secondarily, the the recommendation that action be taken. Without that predicate, Congress did not wish for the secretary to be able to make these kinds of decisions sua sponte, without having conducted the inspection. So to me, there, there is a logical basis to believe that this is indeed what Congress intended. So with that said, Taylor, the court looked at both sides and agreed with OSHA's reading of section 13. Uh, but as you note, I think that uh, there's an old adage that the law lives within the facts. And in this particular case, uh, the folks at at, uh, Made Right, the employer, had made a case to the compliance officer that the remediation measures they had taken with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic were uh, certainly adequate or sufficient. And as you point out, they hadn't had any positive cases in a 30-day stretch which if you may recollect uh, Northeastern Pennsylvania was for a time, a very high, uh, a location with a very high case rate. And in the midst of that high case rate, time and place here was made right with no cases during a 30 day period. And so it is plausible that made right had made a case that was persuasive to the compliance officer that the measures it was, was taking were responsible And conscientious and indeed i think the statistic of case rates would have shown not only responsible and conscientious but also effective so so the court said when you look at all of that it's reasonable to believe that the compliance safety officer didn't believe that there was an imminent danger but what's at stake here is that question of whether or not section 13 grants employees in that circumstance an opportunity to try that question again in front of a federal court. And conversely, or conversely, whether or not the OSHA argument that their prosecutorial discretion is quite wide and proofed against judicial overview or review is, is a more compelling argument. So, So what the district court judge said was an employee can sue, Only if the inspector first concludes that there's an imminent danger and then presents a recommendation to the secretary, and on that basis, the secretary fails to seek injunctive relief, then the employee or employee group may seek judicial review of that decision and ask a court to review whether or not the secretary's decision not to seek injunctive relief was itself arbitrarily or capriciously arrived at. The court said, when you look at section 13, the entirety of the section works in concert and has to be read as a whole. This is a section that permits the agency to seek injunctive relief if an inspector has found that there's an imminent danger. And on that basis, the employer uh, would have to defend uh, not the ultimate question of whether an imminent danger exists, but OSHA would have to defend whether or not it made its decision arbitrarily or capriciously. And that suite of, sub, of four subsections must be read in concert. That's the court's decision. Uh, the court noted that if it were any other way, if it were read any other way, and section 13D were read in isolation, then the employees or employee groups or employee representatives would be able to bring suit against OSHA anytime that they had made a complaint to the agency and disagreed with the findings of the OSHA inspector, particularly with respect to the question of imminent danger. And that is clearly the court found, not what Congress had intended. Okay, so that's, that's the Jane Doe's one, two, three, et cetera. I'm gonna find a better way to read the style of that case. Uh, and maybe I'll talk to one of the uh, counsel who are involved in the case and ask them how they, they referred to the style of the case. Uh, But that is that case. And I think it's an incredibly important case. And and Taylor, it's a case of first impression, which means it'll stand as a landmark decision on the question of how Section 13 should be read. Uh, I think it's an incredibly important case for for perhaps for years to come. Absolutely. So why don't we, in our remaining time together, why don't we bring everyone up to speed on other developments in the field of OSHA law with respect to coronavirus? Because this is now one of the landmark cases Arising out of uh, the coronavirus pandemic in Oshawa, but there have been other developments at at various uh, parts of uh, the federal government and states and let's let's talk about those. First, let's talk about the state, state uh, activity.
1: So, with the passage of Maryland's bill, uh, there are now five states who have passed emergency temporary standards, or, or, or an ETS, as we refer to them here. Um, and you can see here that you know these emergency temporary standards require employers to develop um, you know a lot of different things, including mandatory COVID preparedness and response plans, uh, conduct COVID nineteen hazard assessments for all job tasks, uh, and and we're seeing these you know pop up all all over the country at this moment. Um, the latest developments include uh, the Virginia standard, which was made permanent on uh, January 27th, uh, so no longer a temporary standard, and uh, the Michigan standard, which was recently extended uh, to October of this year, so that will be in place for Michigan employers until October. Um, So so
0: two features, Taylor, of the emergency temporary standards that only lasts for 180 days, and that's why it's called a temporary standard, but the agency may seek one renewal of another 180-day period. And I think you're saying that's what happened in Michigan? Exactly, exactly. And another feature is during that 180 days, the purpose of the emergency temporary standard should be that the agency is using that time to go through proper rulemaking, traditional rulemaking that involves notice and comments from the affected stakeholders to promulgate a permanent standard that would replace the emergency temporary standard upon its expiration. And and you're saying that that's what's happened in the Commonwealth of Virginia? Right, exactly, huh. exactly important developments. And I think that what this shows is the last time we talked, Taylor, on this subject, we would have seen maybe three states and now we see five. And so I think that uh, certainly as as this progresses, there is a likelihood that that number continues to increase. The difficulty that presents is that multi-state employers will now have a patchwork of compliance requirements that they will have to implement Uh, that they they can no longer roll out a one national or nationwide plan, provided that that nationwide plan is not sufficiently compliant in any one of these states. Right. makes it just a little more difficult.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's also been some uh, recent developments coming out of the White House as well.
0: So it all started, and we've talked about this before, uh, with January 1, uh, which is is the first day of the new administration, and the White House issued uh, an executive order that called for OSHA to make a determination as to whether or not an emergency temporary standard was necessary and asked the agency to make that determination by March 15th. We, I I recollect, may have met last at the OSHA 3030, either just before or after that March 15th deadline. It had come and passed and OSHA had not uh, made a decision nor had it promulgated an emergency temporary standard. Uh, In the meantime, the agency has been, I'm sorry, the White House has been quite active in, going through its nomination, hearing, confirmation, swearing in process for its cabinet. And uh, I think it was only a day or two ago that the new Labor Secretary was sworn in. He had gone through his confirmation process and was sworn in, uh, Mr. Walsh. And we have the uh, identity of the person who has been named as uh, the potential next head of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. That would be the Assistant Secretary of Labor for OSHA. And that's uh, Doug Parker, who was the current, who was the head of the California Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or Cal OSHA. Uh, And that was during his tenure that California issued its emergency temporary standard for COVID-19. So that's an interesting choice for, for the federal agency, OSHA, specifically with respect to this question of what's going to happen in the federal agency, OSHA, with respect to the possibility of an emergency temporary standard.
1: Yeah, that's right. And this you know, sort of call from the White House to determine uh, if an ETS was would be needed by March 15th, uh, this prompted Congress to hold a hearing uh, on March 11th to hear arguments uh, on the merits of an emergency temporary standard at the federal level. Uh, there were four witnesses that testified before the committee. Uh, and Manish, you were actually one of those witnesses. Um, and while the majority of witnesses supported the implementation of a federal ETS, I thought you raised a great point in your testimony uh, that, you know, not only would a federal emergency temporary standard create an unchangeable, uh, you know, sort of a static standard based on constantly evolving science, but more importantly, employers are able to adapt to implement effective interventions uh, much more rapidly than the government can develop policy. And, and we've seen this here at Keller and Heckman. Um, and it appears that uh, your arguments may have won the day, as OSHA <laughs> recently announced, uh, that it is stepping back from issuing an ETS uh, f- for the time being.
0: It's possible that, that <laughs> somebody was listening. And uh, it's true what you say that the agency, uh, I think on April 6th, right. made issued a statement saying that it was going to put on hold, at least for the time being. Its interests in uh, promulgating an emergency temporary standard with respect to COVID-19, and specifically, as you say, uh, and in concordance with the argument I've given in my testimony, the basis for the they're putting it on hold was to reflect on the latest scientific changes with respect to the disease. My point was that not only does has the science and healthcare understanding about the nature of the disease itself been continually uh, being updated, and our, our knowledge being expanded. But also about which interventions work and which ones don't, which ones are superfluous, and which ones are highly effective. Uh, Those have been evolving areas of knowledge. And and so guidance documents, I think, uh, my my point was, are a much more uh, efficacious regulatory instrument for something of that nature, for, for a safety and health phenomenon of that nature. Uh, But OSHA has issued, and we've mentioned this in the past uh, here at the OSHA 3030, OSHA's issued a national emphasis program, and it has been enforcing under this national emphasis program uh, quite busily. Uh, So I think that that's incredibly important for the employer community to be uh, aware of. Uh, These these enforcement activities include unprogrammed inspections under the national emphasis program and targeted inspections at work sites industry sectors such as healthcare, meatpacking, and supermarkets uh, have been identified as being uh, areas of interest for the agency. Just yesterday, there was a uh, news release that that OSHA had conducted an inspection and issued a proposed citation and proposed penalty against a tax preparation firm in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, and proposed 136000 change in proposed fines. And that's not the kind of sector that you would think would be the subject of uh, the kind of enforcement action that you see here with 136,000 plus in proposed fines. So I think it's really critically important for employers to be aware of that national emphasis program uh, as a part of its compliance uh, uh, considerations. So with that said, Taylor, why don't we wrap up as well as do with a brief discussion of what we think employers should do in light of these developments to begin with. I think it's important to continue to examine uh, at the workplace written policies and actual practices on a day-to-day basis that are designed towards mitigation of transmission of disease uh, as our understanding of the disease and uh, interventions and their efficacy uh, continues to evolve. And and now we're starting to see a lot of employers that had been allowing remote work or uh, isolated or distanced work return to work in a pre-pandemic configuration. And so it's important to revise and update policies and practices with respect to return to work as well. Taylor, anything else?
1: Yeah, well, just to go off of that, um, you know, in terms of Adapting policies to to changes in in science and changing conditions, Uh, I think it's going to be important for employers to develop practices and continue to update practices uh, relating to ongoing vaccination. Um, And as you mentioned, prepare for these inspections under the National Emphasis Program. Um, Be aware of the fact that they can arise from employee complaints. I think that's an important point uh, moving forward.
0: That's right. And the rollout of vaccination has been a success story. But of course, uh, and, and unfortunately, uh, a ca- uh, counter force to that has been the rollout of additional variants, some of which are more or less receptive to the vaccination. And so, so that's something that employers have to keep an eye out for. Uh, Of course, as we've mentioned before, employers uh, have to be mindful when considering how vaccination affects their workplace policies, like uh, high-density work populations or meetings, travel, uh, whether or not accommodations are appropriate in those cases in order to uh, accommodate requirements under the Americans with Disabilities Act or uh, religious uh, accommodations under Title VII or, or state equivalents. Uh, So those are important takeaway items, I think, to consider. And certainly, this is a a brief 30 minute program. So we cover what we can. If you have any more questions about any of this, please feel free to reach out to us. I love chatting about this stuff. Taylor, I know you're available as well. Uh, So reach out to any one of us on the safety and health team here at Keller and Heckman if you have follow up questions that are simple black letter law questions that we can answer off the top of our head, we'll be more than happy to take time to chat with you. That's it for today's OSHA 3030. Uh, thank you all for participating. We're going to stick around after we turn off the recording and just anyone who wants to stay and ask questions, we're, we're happy to uh, address those. We've already had a couple of pre-submitted questions we'll tackle. So if you want to stick around for a few more minutes, we're, we'll, we'll dive into those. Um, as I said before, the entire library of prior episodes can be found on our website uh, and we're on YouTube as well as as a podcast, so please subscribe. Don't forget to like or rate uh, the podcast or the YouTube channel so that others can find it more easily. All of us are also on LinkedIn. Uh, Please link into us if you haven't already. Uh, And our next program will be at 1 p.m. on May 19th, uh, 2021, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, We have sister programs that you should know about. If your uh, organization is responsible for compliance with Tosca or REACH, we have the Tasca 3030 and the FIFRA 3030. The next episodes of those will be May 12th. And we also have a FIFRA 3030. The next episode will be announced when that comes about. Ours, as I said, will be next May 19th. That's when we'll see you again next. Until then, thank you all for participating. Thank you, Taylor Johnson, for joining me on today's Usha 3030. It was good to do one more program with you, uh, this 93rd episode of the OSHA 3030. And until we see you all again next month, Stay safe.